huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up, and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It's producer Harry here. Today's interview is with venture capital investor and author Richard Koch. So Richard's books have been an absolute... um, influence and inspiration to many entrepreneurs across the world, uh, including Rob. Rob has spoken many times how in the early days when Rob was you know, with Mark setting up Progressive and his other companies, how Rob was learning from the likes of Dr. John Demortini, who we had on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and also Martin Fridson, um, who was a big influence, who we also as well had on the podcast. But another one of these authors with uh, lots of different business principles was Richard Koch and his uh, some of his books on the 80-20-10 principle. So this interview is all about the granular detail regarding business, money, entrepreneurship, and there's definitely something every entrepreneur can learn and take away from this interview. Richard talks about how all he wanted to do was become a millionaire. He had this um, fascination and intrigue since he was a kid. He was gonna be a millionaire. And he talks about what he calls the game of making money. He has some absolute fascinating views on business, entrepreneurship, and money, um, which I think is just gonna blow you guys away. So just before we get into the interview, we also have a YouTube channel. This is where we publish um, all the videos to the interviews, just like this with Richard Koch and all our other ones. So head over to YouTube and go to the Rob Moore YouTube channel, where you can watch the video version of this very interview with Richard and many of our other interviews. Just another thing as well, this lockdown, this COVID-19 crisis isn't gonna stop us. We're in the process of uh, getting a lot of other interviews done, so just watch this space. We've got loads and loads and loads of content, uh, both from Rob and all the other guests that are gonna feature on this podcast. So watch this space, we've got a lot of things to come on the show. So let's just get straight into it with venture capital investor and author Richard Koch. But remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Hello, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast, the live stream, the lockdown lives, we should be calling these now. Uh, I want to thank you for joining this one. Now, this is a real pleasure for me, and I know I say that from time to time. Well, I say it a lot because I only pick guests who I feel like I've got some kind of affinity or connection with, even though they may not know it yet. But back in what, probably 2006, so we're talking 15 years ago, probably in the first 10 personal development or what you might call self-education genre of books I read was a book called 80-20 Principle by Richard Koch. Uh, And I listened to it on audio as well. And I felt like he had a very warm, calming, authoritative, knowledgeable voice, which helped the education. And I learned about the principle of 80-20 uh, tried to disprove it everywhere, looking around, where is their 50-50? Couldn't disprove it. 80% of the baldness is in 20% of my hair. 80% of the results from 20% of the efforts. 80% of the, the pleasure from 20% of the pursuits. And I was fascinated by this. So it feels very humbling. I feel very grateful. It feels like maybe a, a, some, a, a recognition of the growth of my own journey. 
that I get to introduce to you the author of the wildly successful book, um, 80-20 Principle, and coming soon, Unreasonable Success. So, Richard, thank you very much for being on the podcast and the live stream. Rob, it's a great pleasure, and I wish that everyone would give me such a very kind and <laughs> uh, positive introduction. Uh, but it's obviously uh, you know, struck a chord with a lot of people. It's not so much that I'm a fantastic author or anything like that. It's just the power of this principle. Mm. And one of the things that I, I you know, have based my life and my success to, ex to the extent I've had it is you've got to use principles. It's much easier if you use principles than if you don't. And, um, you know, not only the 80-20 principle, but in business, the star principle, which you may, may touch on as well, is just fantastically powerful. And if you can use it and um, think about it, uh, you can probably increase your success enormously. And then there's this question of unreasonable success, which we're going to come on to, which in a way is a is a, as a, a principle for remarkable success, which we might talk about as well. So anyway, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. So there's so much I'd love to cover. I want to get right into the meat of it. So you're launching a book any minute now, I believe, uh, called Unreasonable Success. And to me, that's, I think that's a fantastic title, Richard. It, it's, it, it's got some how-to element, but it's also got some mystique, makes me want to know more. So could you, whatever tangents you want to go on, and as long as you want to chat, talk us through what unreasonable success is and then how to create some unreasonable success in our own life or business. Great. And do interrupt me if I'm rabbiting on too much <laughs> because uh, this is something which is very dear to my heart. Um, <clears throat> unreasonable success. At the beginning of this book, I've got actually a dictionary definition. It's a fake dictionary definition, which I made up of what is unreasonable success because this is a phrase that uh, I'm trying to make public and trying to make known, and uh, I've coined it, I suppose. And unreasonable success, Rob, really has four components, and I, I'm speaking without notes here, so I hope I can remember the four components. But the first one, which is which you've already alluded to, is that it's a, such a, a degree of remarkable success that an individual has. And this is about individual success. It's not about corporate success or team success or any of those, you know, very important things. It's about how people change the world. And so uh, the first point is that it's, you know, it's it seems completely unreasonable. It certainly goes against a lot of the gestalt that there is politically and economically that, that everything's a team effort and all the rest of it. Well, that's true. But it's also true that individuals occasionally uh, can have remarkable success and change the world. But, and there is a big but here, the mystery, the mystique which you referred to resides in the other three definitions of unreasonable success. And one of those is that it doesn't exactly seem right that the success these people have comes to them because in many ways they are not as high-performing not not even sometimes as competent and not even as um you know all-round skill oriented as many other people who are their peers and these peers often fall by the wayside or they're reasonably successful but they're not unreasonably successful and what is it that actually makes these people very 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 successful in a sense they don't deserve it and that to me is is kind of like the the interesting part of this. And the, the third um, aspect of unreasonable success is that it comes from a series of experiences which the people have, to some extent attitudes, but how they react to particular circumstances and whether they have those particular circumstances. And in the book, there are nine of those which I will go through. I call them landmarks. Because every one of the unreasonably successful people that I studied, and I should say that I took 20 people uh, from contemporary life and, and from history who actually have had uh, unreasonable success, as I define it, um, they have actually, all of them, had these nine characteristics. Some of them are attitudes in responding to events. Some of them are personal strategies which they somehow stumbled across. They didn't necessarily... Um, think it through. They didn't plan. But actually, these things happened to them. And one of the, the most um, amazing things when I researched the book 
was that all of these people who identified as being remarkably successful uh, had all of these nine different landmarks, which I will uh, touch on in a minute. And the last thing, which relates to the word reason, is that the, the, the individuals actually used intuition far more than reason. So it was unreasonable in the sense that it was intuitive. And very often, clearly, they had some help. From, uh, and in fact, in some cases, they, they acknowledged they had help from outside. One of the one of the people, for example, is J.K. Rowling. Well, J.K. Rowling would tell you, I think, that she didn't invent Harry Potter. Harry Potter came to her when she was stuck on a train between Manchester and London, I think it was, for four hours. The train had stalled and broken down, and she had nothing to do. But suddenly, in her mind's eye, she saw this sort of scrawny individual. She didn't know his name. All she knew was that he was on a train and he was going to a school for wizards. You know, that's bizarre. You know, I mean, you're stuck there. And she saw the other characters who feature in the book as well. And she didn't have a pen. She didn't have paper. But when she got back to London, she, she wrote it all down furiously. And it took her quite a while to actually write the first Harry Potter book. But it was almost as though that had come from, um, from outside her an experience which many other uh, famous composers and writers like Tchaikovsky and Mozart and um, Coleridge the poet and scientists and so forth have often said that, 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 that they saw things in a dream or they came to them from the outside. Now, it's not, it's not necessarily true that everyone who's in the book had that, that kind of experience, but it is true that they all used their intuition. And intuition, as I'll come on and, and discuss perhaps, is not random. I mean, intuition uh, follows certain rules. I think which we can which we can go through, which people may not be at all aware of, but nevertheless, um, it, it was um, it was important for them. So you know, let me just name some of the other people who are in the book. Uh, there's Winston Churchill, uh, and he's very interesting because he was a failure through almost all of his life until Hitler came along and saved him. Uh, there, there's a, from the business world, Jeff Bezos, uh, the originator, obviously, of Amazon, and uh, Steve Jobs. And I've also got Bob Dylan in there, Madonna, for God's sake. Madonna's in the book. Uh, I'm not sure that she's necessarily like that, but she is. Uh, and, uh, and then we have, um, uh, perhaps more on the more spiritual side, we have Paul the Apostle, or Paul of Tarsus, as I call him, who also had the vision of the risen Christ on the way to uh, Damascus, which transformed him. Uh, and we have Lenin is in there and uh, over quite a few other people that I'll come on and talk about. Nelson Mandela is, uh, is one of the particular heroes of the book, I suppose, who perhaps did deserve what happened to him. But, but um, anyway, those are the 20 people. And uh, what I do is I, I give a very brief summary of what they did in case people aren't aware of it. Otto von Bismarck, he's another one who's in the book, the most successful European statesman of the 19th century who uh, united Germany, uh, which used to be in the 1860s a combination of about 40 or 50 independent principalities and states. Um, and very, very interesting man because he followed uh, one of the paths, which, is, which in fact is one of the uh, themes of the book. Uh, which is a combination of iron determination and, in fact, complete dependence on events. He waited for events to play into his hands, and then he struck at the right moment. Um, so, um, yeah, I've probably rabbited on enough for the time being. That's all right, Richard. I'd love to come to those nine principles in a moment. I just want to let people know why Richard's camera isn't on, because all you can see is my face nodding away. That's just... <laughs> Um, Richard lives, uh, you live in Portugal, is that right, Richard? That's right. I live in the countryside in Portugal, and unfortunately, the internet here is not quite strong enough to support audio, uh, video. And if we videoed it, apart from the fact that I'm I'm quite old and uh, not, as, not as good looking as I used to be. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the reason is that we don't want to interrupt the, uh, the transmission. And just um, before we come to the, those nine principles of unreasonable success, Richard, why do you live in Portugal? Why did you move there? 
Um, is there anything in that? Uh, actually, I live in Portugal for some of the year. I also live in Cape Town for some of the year. I'm, I'm increasingly uh, spending a bit of time in Australia each year as well. And uh, I also have a home in Spain. So, so the motif of all those places, can your listeners guess? Well, uh, or can you guess? What's, what is there in common between the south of Portugal, Cape Town, south of Spain, uh, and, and Australia? Oh, I reckon if someone puts this in the comments, they should get a prize because that sounds hard to me. Um, I'll put you out of your uh, agony. It's very, it's very, very obvious when you when you hear it. Sunshine, <laughs> of course. Right. I'm not. I'm not a sun lover. I'm a sun worshipper. <laughs> uh, when I, I think when I was, um, I remember when I was, uh, I think it was 19. I actually was in Australia very briefly, and I saw. Uh, actually, they were Kiwis rather than Australians walking past. A, a man and a woman, a young man and a young woman, and uh, they had fantastic suntans. And I said to myself, that's what I want. That's what I want to do in my life. You know, I quite like to make some money. I quite like to do a few other things. But I actually want to enjoy the sunshine. And I, actually, I spend probably, um, well, as much as possible time outside. So, I, you know, I play tennis, I ride my bicycle, I take the dog for a walk and things like that. And uh, I just love being in the sun. It's very superficial. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was going for something deep and meaningful, but no, it's great. It's not spiritual. It's not financial. <laughs> it's sunshine. So actually, again, but before we come back to the, these nine elements of unreasonable success, because actually this is quite fascinating. Um, if you travel between three and four different locations through the year, then clearly you are not tied to a desk or a city or an office. So were you ever... And how did you make that leap? I wrote a book called Life Leverage, Richard, um, mm. which is essentially about creating a, a mobile, modern lifestyle of, of outsourcing and, and time and location freedom. You've clearly done that. Um, how did you make that move? Well, there are two answers, two answers to that. The one answer is the, uh, I suppose, the approved answer, and then there's the perhaps not approved answer. Can we have both? Uh, yes, absolutely. The the approved answer is that I I worked as a management consultant for um for oh, probably about eighteen years, uh, and I was working very very hard when I was working as a management consultant. And and having worked, you know, I don't know, seventy hours a week, probably working, you know, six days a week, uh, for that period of time, I decided that that was enough and that I'd done enough hard work. I was going to limit the amount of time that I worked to one hour a day. Now, I don't stick religiously to that. And the definition of work anyway is very fluid as far as I'm concerned. I do the things that I enjoy doing. But uh, work-wise, uh, I said I made a decision, basically, uh, when I was in my late 30s that I would stop doing that. But, of course, um, the, the wherewithal to do that and indeed to be able to you know, follow the sun around the world, uh, came from starting or being one of the co-founders of a consulting business called LEK. And LEK proved to be very successful. Uh, in the first six years, we grew about 100% each year in, in headcount, in revenues, in profits, and so on and so forth. And then I decided at that stage to get off that particular uh, uh, bus or that particular rat race, get out of that particular rat race, uh, and uh, you know, be do what I wanted to do, really. But the, the curious thing is, and the 80-20 principle very much supports this, 80-20 principle being, as mentioned the book, but also something which I try and live by. Uh, the more you do just the things that are important to do, the more successful you may well be. Now, perhaps I've just been very lucky. But, but it certainly worked for me. I only try and do things that I think will have some uh, impact on uh, how I think I want things to go or something that I really enjoy. And uh, if you can get to that stage, then I think uh, you are probably not only going to be happier, but a lot more effective because you can take your time and think about what's important in your life and think about the things that you are uniquely qualified to do.
and and then just go ahead and do them. And then is that the unofficial answer? Is that different to that? Well, though no, you've had both actually, Rob. Oh, okay. the, 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 let me just clarify that the 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 approved answer is I worked very hard, and you know, and then I decided to to use the power of capital rather than the power of uh, labour. Uh, and the the unapproved answer is that I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what lazy helps with leverage, though, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, yeah. I think being lazy is great because you can be very selective. Yes, I mean, there's a there's a story in the book about General von Manstein, who was uh, Hitler's. I should mention Hitler, but who was Hitler's right hand? Well, he was the top general. Actually, he despised Hitler as being a nasty little man, but. But he was responsible for all the Blitzkrieg successes that the, that the armies had. And he, he said that there are four types of um, uh, general or four types of officer in the army. You know, there are firstly the, um, the uh, good, hardworking people. He divided people into hardworking on the one hand and uh, successful on the other hand. So he said that, you know, you've got the hardworking guys who are, give all attention to detail, uh, but they are, um, they're basically uh, stupid. And he said, that's fine. You know, there's a place for those people. They will never make good chief executives. They'll never make good heads of army, but they're good staff officers. Okay. And then you've got the guys who are uh, stupid and lazy. And he said, leave them alone. He didn't say fire them. He said, leave them alone. They don't do any harm. And then he said that there, there are people who are hardworking and stupid. And those people, he said, you've got to, you, no, sorry, hardworking and intelligent. So he said, those people make work for everyone and they've got to be fired immediately. <laughs> and then there are the people who are intelligent but lazy. And he said, these are the people who are destined for the highest office. And the reason that they're destined for the highest office is that they will find ways of doing things with relatively little effort and, they, and relatively little resource. And therefore, by being very selective, they are allowed to be lazy. Uh, but and, and if you're going to be lazy, you have to be very, very careful in how you use whatever talent or whatever resources you have available to you. And that strikes me as very true. I sometimes think that chief executives shouldn't be allowed to work more than three days a week. Was <laughs> <laughs> it Bill Gates that said, if you want to get something done, give it to a lazy person? I don't um, know who said it originally, but I'm sure yeah. Bill said it and lots of other people say it. And I think yeah. it's, it's true, isn't it? Hi, it's Rob here, interrupting you with something you may not know about me. I was one of the few people on the planet hand-selected by Facebook to pilot their new supporter program. It's a very small premium model where you can get exclusive content and advance notice or discount of new products and services. So this is what I've done for you. Not only can you get best discounts for any training that we might run, not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a, a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anything. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. That's bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. I believe the gap between free content and paid content is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a lot of free content out there that's maybe not that good. And for just a few dollars a month, you can get the best content on business, on entrepreneurship, on starting up, on scaling up, on sales, on marketing, on the mindset of being an entrepreneur. So go to bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R right now. Is there any way, maybe one or two ways we could adapt the 80-20 principle for the lockdown? Um, you know, the modern view of 80-20 principle so we can, you know, survive and thrive through this um, 
very unprecedented time. I think it's a big opportunity, actually. I mean, I think it's proved that the frenetic pace of life and having loads of meetings are not necessary. Mm. So you've, if you just focus on the key things in your life and, and your work, then, um, you know, what is it that makes you happy? What can you do which is going to be most useful to other people? And in business, you know, you might think, well, can you use the 80-20 principle and the star principle? We haven't talked about the star principle, but basically the idea that all successful, very successful companies are in high-growth markets and they become or are the market leader, preferably the dominant market leader. Just ask yourself those questions. Because it's a great opportunity to think about life and it's a great opportunity to think about your business and your success. Mm. So, you know, the fact that you're not able to do a lot of things is a, a blessing in disguise in many ways. As, yeah, long as, I, as long as you live, of course, which is quite important as well. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's a very good point. A lot of the things that we probably held as important but weren't or urgent but there were other people's urgencies. Um I think the the universe has taken those all off of us or a lot of them. So I think that's a great point. Um, next then is how do you build intuition and trust your own intuition? You talked about that earlier, um, right at the start. So in one minute or less, how do you build and trust your own intuition? There are two ways to do it, Rob, which I think are, are very powerful. One is you have to specialize in an area of knowledge because intuition, as I said earlier, isn't random. You know, it may seem that, you know, it's very nice to get, uh, you know, a, a huge insight and all the rest of it. But your insights can be wrong as well as right. If you know a great deal about an area, you remember uh, Albert Einstein. Before anybody had heard of Albert Einstein, he decided to specialize in this area of the question of, you know, uh, is there anything absolute about time? And all of the physics related to that, which was very exciting, high growth er area, which, you know, people like uh, Leonard and, and um, several other physicists were making huge steps forward at the time. Um, you know, specialize in that and acquire, you know, very, very deep knowledge in a very narrow area. That's the first thing. And the second thing to do is to train yourself to use your unconscious mind. Because the unconscious mind, as Matthew Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, a neuroscientist has discovered, is tremendously tries to help people. You know, you have to basically believe that, that, that it will help. You have to do the right things to enable the unconscious mind to work. And if you just want to read one book to tell you how to do it, Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep is a, is a good book to have. But training your unconscious mind to come up with ideas is possible. I've done it for years. Uh, and you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, it does interrupt your sleep, it's true. And you've got the answer. It's all worked out. You know, and you haven't done it. You know, it's either it's if you if if you're a believer, for example, you may believe it comes supernaturally. If you're not, you say it's just a function of the body and the evolution and the rest of it. But there's no doubt that being open to the insights that can come to you when you're sleeping or sometimes when you're daydreaming during the day or shaving or, you know, you're, on, you're doing a bit of exercise that's not too demanding, you know, you've got to cultivate those moments and let the unconscious mind tell you what to do. Thank you, Richard. While you're doing that, I just went on and ordered all your books I don't have on Audible, just to remind <laughs> myself, um, and we'll mention them in a moment. Okay. So what's the best advice you can remember you've ever received? Uh, you need a failure. I remember in uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, I can't remember who it was, but I was really dumbfounded by this. I, I'd always tried to pretend that I'd been very successful at everything, as most young people do, most ambitious young people. <laughs> and, uh, and this guy said to me, Richard, the trouble with you is that you've never had a failure. Go and, go and have yourself a failure. And, and uh, shortly afterwards, I did, not through, not deliberately. But, <laughs> but when it came along, I thought, oh, maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. Mm. And what's the worst advice you can remember you've ever received? Uh, the worst advice I've ever received was to work hard. <laughs> a lot of people gave me that advice, and I followed it for far too long. Mm. Okay. Uh, is there one thing in the world that you think is wrong that you'd quite like to change? This sounds really, this sounds really uh, soppy, but it's not. You know, I think happiness is available to people, very, very clearly available. But to, to, to get happiness, you have to surrender. You have to be willing to bend with events. 
And one of the things that, that Bismarck said that I, I found enormously useful is man does not create the current of events. All he can do is uh, respond to them and steer or something like that. So steer, you know, uh, you know, think of yourself being in a canoe or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so um, if you if you go with the flow and, and don't try and control things and if you, you know, but are very receptive to opportunity that comes along, uh, then I think you can be uh, successful. But I think it's also in personal relationships as well. I mean, I, I don't want to preach this because I'm not particularly great myself, but, but you know, it's very important that you uh, don't over-exercise your ego and that you are willing to surrender, you know, to, to bend, and that's the way to be happy. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, this is from Victoria Ray. She wants to know your favourite book of all time. Yeah, people often ask me this, um, and I never really can give a very, a very, um, a very good answer. I mean, there are several books that have. I mean, one of the most recent ones is *The Creative Brain* uh, by a woman called uh, Nancy Andreessen, and she she goes and she discusses how great people have often had these experiences of getting stuff from the unconscious mind, and that's a very powerful book. Um, Thomas S. Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and that, seemed, that was over 50 years ago, and it may seem a pretty odd thing to recommend, but, but if you're at all interested in uh, discovering something that nobody else has discovered, I think you should read this book, The Structure of Scientific Re uh, Revolutions. This is an interesting topic, Richard, because I was raised by hardworking parents, um, and my parents instilled hard work in me. And I certainly, certainly since this lockdown, I've put on, I've rolled up my sleeves and worked hard to navigate my companies through this challenging time. Um, but sometimes when you work hard, you try and do everything. And so you don't understand that no two tasks have the same value. Um, you know, one task might have a £10 value, one task might have a £100,000 value, or one task might take 10 hours but not give you much benefit and one task might take an hour and give you more benefit than the other nine tasks beneath them and if you just work hard you don't stop to think about how no two tasks have the same value no that's that's absolutely right rob and when i was working in bailing company bailing company was a very unusual consulting organization which taught me most of what i learned about just about everything um they had a theory which was great for the people who were the vice presidents, the partners of the firm. And the theory was that you should never, ever do anything that a lower cost resource, i.e. a person, uh, could do. And you should delegate it. Now, this meant that you never had to go and buy your own sandwiches at lunchtime, for example. Yeah. Someone would go and buy. So effectively, they, it, it was a system whereby you know, the top people actually only either they thought deeply about the issues of a particular client or they were talking to the top person in the organization about things. Yeah. That's all, that's all that they did. Um, and it's just amazing. Once you've, once, you've, once you've had that ability to delegate things to people who are intelligent and, and, and highly motivated, but just younger or less experienced than you, you know, you want to replicate that experience because it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. You just don't do the bottom 80% of whatever needs doing. You just concentrate on the on the on the top things. Yeah. Of course, if you ever stop working in an organisation, you find that you have to do something. You have to make your own cup of coffee and stuff like that. <laughs> so, uh, so that's a, a bit of a trade-off because actually managing people is is uh, is sometimes a bit of a pain as well. So so life, as always, has its uh, trade-offs. Yeah. But maybe we should get back to the unreasonable success and just talk a little bit about uh, about some of the strange landmarks that these people visited because they're not conventional at all yeah you said there were nine was it nine elements of unreasonably successful people yeah, nine landmarks rob that's right yeah let's just take a couple of those shall we as, as okay. illustrations one of them is that each of the people uh, who were unreasonably successful each of the 20 people in the book actually went through an experience which changed them i call it transforming experience and these experiences could be very different. It could be something that lasted a day. It could be something that lasted for a few years. But 
they were different when they came out of that experience than they were before. They were almost infinitely more powerful. And one of the interesting things is that these people didn't decide to have a transforming experience. You know, they actually went through something which transformed them. And it's only in retrospect, as 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 uh, uh, who was the Danish philosopher and theologian from the nineteenth century? He he said something to, to to things. We have to live life forward, but it only makes sense when you look backwards. Um, his first name was Soren. What was the last name? Yeah, that's this. This is one for your listeners and the rest of it. But anyway. The, the point about the transforming experiences is that they were very, very different, but they had to have them. And so, therefore, if you're listening to this or if you're reading the book or if you're just thinking about your own uh, uh, trajectory in life, one of the questions which I ask everyone is, have you had a transforming experience? Has there been an occasion in which, because you had this experience, you came out of it much more powerful? Than you went into it. And some of these experiences were very unpleasant. And it's quite interesting. I mean, let's just take a few examples. Lenin. Lenin had a, a beloved elder brother who was a wonderful guy. Everybody loved him. And he was a couple of years older than, um, than Lenin when he was a kid. And I think he was 18 or 19 years old. When, when something happened which transformed Lenin's world when he was, I think, 16 or 17. And it was the hanging of this elder brother, because unbeknown to the whole family, Lenin's family, uh, they had in their in their midst a terrorist. And uh, this beloved elder brother, who everyone thought was wonderful, and he was wonderful, uh, was plotting to murder uh, Tsar uh, Nicholas Alexander III. Yeah. So basically, he was caught. And he was taken to a uh, fortress and he was hanged. And it was very, very uh, dramatic. I think this is my great uh, episode or, or clip anyway in a documentary. But he, there were five of them and they only had three gibbets. So two of them had to wait and see their colleagues actually hanged and die before they could actually go through the same experience. And Lenin's elder brother was actually the last one to um, to be hanged, and he calmly um, kissed the, the cross which the priest gave him, and then went with great fortitude to die. Lenin was totally transformed from that experience. From being an industrious student, he became a revolutionary or secret revolutionary anyway, almost overnight. And if it had not been for that experience, he would not have been fueled by hatred of the czars and their hangers-on. Um, and uh, that was, you know, basically Lenin. And indeed, the, you know, if Lenin hadn't had that experience, um, the whole of the 20th century history would have been very much happier, probably. Can uh, I just but, jump in here, Richard, just quickly, because this is fascinating. But I have to ask this question. What if someone feels they've not had such a transformational event does that um, disqualify them from unreasonable success? Yes, it does, Rob. But the point is that you can engineer your own unreasonable uh, success. Let me let me give a, in business um, a happier and more typical example. Sure. Which is that every single person that in business was a great success either had a transforming experience in their own company or more usually they had a transforming experience in another company beforehand and this happened to me i mentioned banning company earlier and indeed the boston consulting group was very important to me in, in preparing me for what i did but uh bezos jeff bezos richest man in the world okay so he invented amazon right everybody knows he invented amazon uh, and that's been huge success. His formula is wonderful, you know, unbeatable prices, great customer service, and all that stuff. Um, now, not many people realise that Bezos actually worked for a company before he worked for, before he founded rather Amazon. And this was a company called D.E. Shore and Company, which was a quantitative um, investment house, alternative investment house, run by a professor of finance called David Shaw. He set up the company about 1990, 
and Bezos joined the company, I think 1992 or something like that. And um, Bezos at the time was 26 years old. He was disgusted with working on Wall Street. He hated the characters there with their pink shirts and their and their suits and their superior attitudes and, and all the rest of it. He hated the idea that the only important thing in life was making money. He hated the idea that you screwed everyone in order to uh, to make a buck and all the rest of it. Of course, that was a bit of a caricature of what was going on on Wall Street, but it had some elements of truth there. And certainly, it had elements of truth as far as Bezos was concerned. And a headhunter said to him when he was 26, you know, you want to get out of Wall Street, but there is this odd Wall Street company that you should go and see. Go and meet David Shaw. And it wasn't a typical Wall Street company at all. In fact, it wasn't based in Wall Street. It was based in the village, in the East Village, uh, Greenwich Village. And it was on top of the Marxist bookshop. And people didn't turn up in suits and ties and the rest of it. They turned up in jeans or shorts and T-shirts. Uh, but it was highly quantitative. David Shaw, you know, was was a, a a great evangelist. And one of the things that he noted in the early 1990s was that the internet was going to transform business. That was, that was his belief. It wasn't a belief that was very common at that time. Um, he registered his URL. Uh, three years before Goldman Sachs registered theirs, four years before Morgan Stanley uh, got theirs as well. And he said, everything is going to be sold over the internet. And when uh, Bezos joined D.E. Shaw and Company, he and David Shaw formed a very important personal link. They were very close friends. They were they were very similar sort of characters, you know. They were off the off the scale bright. They were nerdy, and they, you know, were extremely opinionated. And they got on like a house on fire. And uh, David Shaw asked Bezos to uh, work on a project which he devised, which he called the Everything Store. And the idea was that you would sell everything on the internet. Uh, and you know, it, it's basically what Amazon became. And you know, it's, I'm not saying that Bezos didn't have a lot of input to that because it was his project and he and David worked on it together. It's impossible to tell who actually worked out what. But they did things, for example, like work out what was going to be the first category of goods that they would sell. And they decided that that was books and there are particular reasons that which we won't go into. But, 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 you know, it was that ready you know, as as um, Boris Johnson might say, oven ready. Uh, you know, just stick it in the microwave and you know, go and do it. And that was um, that's that's what Jeff Bezos did. He um, David Shaw wanted Bezos to be the head of the company, but he wanted him to do it within the Shaw and Company. And Bezos said, "No, I actually want to be my own boss. You know, I actually want to do this myself." And uh, David Shaw walked Bezos around, as the story goes, Central Park for a couple of hours, trying to persuade him to change his mind. He didn't. He was not successful at doing it. Bezos said, I want to do it. I'll start it in my garage. Uh, and David Shaw, quite remarkably and very, very generously, said, OK, go and do it. No, he didn't say, I'll sue you. He didn't say, I want a share of the company or anything like that. Uh, and so the rest is history. You know. But if Bezos had not gone to that headhunter in 1990 or 1992, uh, if he had not been told to go and see David Shaw, if he had not gone on like a house on fire with David Shaw, you know, we'd never heard of Jeff Bezos and he wouldn't be the richest person in the world. It was a transforming experience for him. And, and similarly, you know, if you take Steve Jobs, he saw the future of computing. It was a, it was a stunning moment that he saw the future of computing computing happened, I think, in 1981, etc. And it wasn't at Apple. It was actually at the Xerox Laboratories in California, where he managed to finagle uh, getting in to see them because uh, he said that Apple would take an investment in this particular uh, unit of Xerox. So it was Xerox Park that he visited. And they'd worked out how to do everything with the computer that we now take for granted, like smooth scrolling and uh, putting files 
on the desktop. But, you know, there's no such thing as a desktop beforehand. It was invented by the uh, boffins at, at Xerox Park. And when he left that meeting and drove back to his headquarters with his colleagues in the car, uh, Steve Dobbs was driving. He said, this is it. This is it. This is the future. This is the future of, of computing. And, you know, and everyone in the car obviously agreed, you know, you agree with the boss, but they, they'd seen it. You know, that was the thing that transformed them. And they did it much better than Xerox would ever have done it. Much, they, did, they built a machine which is much lower cost, much lower price, and actually better. But they, if they had not seen that it had been done, they would not have known how to do it. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was the transforming experience of, of Steve Jobs and so on and so forth. You know, there, it's, if, you, if you look at any successful person, it's odds on that they will have worked for a company. And then they took the idea and they probably tweaked it in a you know, quite different way. But they felt that they could do it. And so, therefore, I say to your listeners, if you've never had that experience, it's the most wonderful experience you could possibly have. Work out which area you want to focus on. Work out which area you think you have got the greatest talent in. And then go and work for a company, which is easy to find because it's growing very fast. It's growing very fast because it knows something that no other firm knows. Go and work there and then do your own thing afterwards. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost a fail-safe uh, formula for success and and it's easy to do because these firms are conspicuous if you look carefully because they're growing very very fast any firm that's growing very very fast is, is quite likely to be in a new area of knowledge where things are being discovered every day and it's quite likely to be very successful because you don't grow fast without money and you don't you know people who've got money don't give it to firms just for the hell of it so so it's easy to do uh, but but people don't do it, and so you know. I mean, that's that's one of the most hopeful things that can happen. Sometimes the, the transforming experiences is, is 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 also you know a threat, and if the threat becomes an opportunity, the classic example of this is Margaret Thatcher. People don't realise it now, but Margaret Thatcher, in her first two and a half years as prime minister between 1979 and 1982, was a hopeless failure. A hopeless failure. She she was a great fan of Winston Churchill, which is funny because he was a great failure through most of his career as well. Uh, and you know, inflation, you know, was 15 percent, 20 percent, or whatever. Unemployment. You remember. That such and such, you had labor isn't working. It's a picture of a dull queue, allegedly a dull queue, not really a dull queue, on the advertisements for the 1979 general election. You know, that was when unemployment was 700,000. By 1982, unemployment was 1.5 million, you know, and going up. And, um, you know, not only that, but the Social Democratic Party formed by uh, the Gang of Four, led by Roy Jenkins, had actually started to win three by-elections in rock-solid Tory seats. And it looked likely that, that uh, Jenkins would become the next prime minister at, at the general election, which had to be held the following year. And Mrs. Thatcher was loathed by the majority of people in her cabinet. They were Ted Heath's people, and she got rid of Ted, you know, and, and she was a loony right-winger, according to those people. And not only that, she was a woman, you know, and, and you know, I mean, William, William Whitelaw, who became a, a, quite a loyal left, lieutenant to her after the Falklands War, you know, dismissed her as being governessly, governessly, meaning that she was lower class, lower middle class, and she was female, and what the hell was she doing running, running the country? Well, when the Falklands came along, Mrs. Thatcher said, when, when uh, President Gautiera invaded the Falkland Islands in, in 1982, uh, she said it was the worst moment of her life. But then she decided that it was possible to possibly reclaim the islands. And she, she authorised the task force, which actually went and did that. The US Navy said it was a military impossibility for that to happen. Even her dear friend Ron, Ronald Reagan, you know, tried to persuade her to accept that, that this has happened and there was nothing you could do. And anyway, 
it's only a couple of hundred, couple of thousand people. Uh, 8,000 miles away from Britain, close to Argentina, you know. Uh, but Mrs. Thatcher said, no, we're going we're gonna to get back these islands. If she'd been a man, she wouldn't have done it because she'd have known that war is really tricky. I mean, a lot of people in her cabinet had thought at the end of the Second World War, and they knew that, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy and all the rest of it, uh, you know. Things can be very, very unsuccessful. She was jolly lucky. You know, somehow it worked. And she managed to hold on for the six weeks it took the task force to arrive and not to agree with President of the United States that she should actually give way diplomatically. Once the Falklands had been reclaimed, through her bravery and the bravery of the people who did it, obviously, the British troops, uh, she was totally transformed and her position was impregnable and these people in the cabinet who had been uh, quite uh, dismissive of her and, and planning to plotting to get rid of her actually then fell into line and she then did the privatization the sale of council houses and all the rest of it it's true that the transforming experience had its bad side as well because it made her very arrogant and in the end she thought the poll tax was a new uh, was, was a new uh, example of where everyone else was wrong and she was right. Well, it didn't prove to be the case. But for, you know, she would not have had the impact on Britain that she did, good and bad, in the middle and late 1980s, if she had not had that transforming experience of Falklands. If Falklands had not happened, she'd have been thrown out of office, either by her colleagues before the election or by the, the electorate in 1983. So another example of something that happens to people... The theme in this is that they become, one way or another, very powerful, either because they know what to do and they see an opportunity that no one else does, or because they've had this experience which convinces them that they're Superman or Superwoman and all the rest of it, which is always a delusion, but it's an incredibly useful and powerful delusion. Mm. Uh, as, as, Steve, as Steve Jobs or the Apple commercial said, you know, the people who change the world are the people who are crazy enough to believe that they can. Yeah. One, one of the other of these nine um, landmarks is self-belief. And, you know, self I mean, that's obvious in a way. You've really got to believe that you can change the world before you do. The vast majority of people don't believe that they can change the world, and therefore they don't. Mm. Um, but the interesting thing to me, Rob, is not knowing that self-belief is important because that's not, you know, that's not terribly original. The key is how do you get self-belief? And I discuss this in the book. You know, the, the way to get self-belief is actually to focus on an area where you are, in, you know, and again, this isn't original, it's where you actually are ideally suited to do it and to become equipped by having a transforming experience and, and, and there are a few other things as well which are very important. But those are the, the sort of things that are, that, that are very important. The, the other landmark I'd just like to focus on, because I think it's very encouraging for everyone, is um, you, you have to learn to thrive on setbacks. And again, Churchill is probably the best illustration. Is Churchill, in the Second World War, sorry, in the First World War, uh, had two terrible, terrible strategic failures which caused the deaths of a large number of British troops. One was when he took an, uh, an untrained army to try and stop the Germans from taking Antwerp and therefore then taking all the other ports along the North Sea in France and, and Belgium. Uh, and that was a complete failure. He was previously the head of the Navy and he had to resign as a result of the, of the fiasco it took five days for the Germans to uh, defeat this army, which in effect was um, Churchill's private army, which he cobbled up. And then in 1917, there was the incident called Gallipoli or the Dardanelles, which was a quite a creative idea to get rid of what, you know, Churchill said was, you know, chewing barbed wire on the Western Front and to go into uh, Turkey and that part of the country and then basically work your way westward from there. Well, you know, it was a harebrained scheme. It didn't succeed, and there were a huge number of casualties as a result of that. 
so that was a great failure. In the general strike of 1926, uh, he basically provoked the miners into uh, a strike, which was a, a, a tremendously negative experience for the economy. Uh, I mean, it had the same sort of impact on the economy as um, as indeed the virus is having today. You know, G GDP went down a huge amount. Um, and he also, the year before that, took Britain off the gold standard as Chancellor of the Exchequer at a ridiculously high pre-First World War level of $4 to the pound. And that was a, a disaster. In the 1930s, he resisted a measure of, um, quite a mild measure of self-government for India. He had a seven-year campaign against this thing. He thought Gandhi wasn't as bad as Hitler, but he was getting on that way. I mean, it, it, it was ridiculous. He was isolated. He was drinking heavily, even by his liberal standards. I do like, though, his uh, aphorism, which uh, I have taken more out of alcohol than it has taken out of me, uh, which was probably true. But nevertheless, he was in a bad way, washed up, isolated. No one thought that he was fit for high office. But he actually got one thing right, which was the belief that Hitler was a menace to the world. He came up with that belief in 1932 before Hitler had managed to work his way into the chancellor's office and you know basically uh he kept saying we cannot allow germany to rearm don't trust mr hitler you know he says he has no more territorial ambitions after marching troops into the rhineland don't believe him it's not true everyone else went to speak to him and said hitler's a wonderful guy you know the leader of the labor party lansbury was delighted to discover that Hitler was vegetarian and that he was kind to dogs and therefore, you know, Hitler was no threat and so on and so forth. All the great and good, you know, went to go and see Hitler and said, you know, you don't want to take any notice of what he said in Mein Kampf. That was just, you know, bullshit, you know, and uh, he was just playing to the gallery on that. You know, this man's perfectly reasonable. Neville Chamberlain, who saw him in uh, Munich in 1938, the first time that Chamberlain had ever been on an airplane, uh, to go and see Hitler in Munich. What did he say about Hitler? He didn't say that he was an extremist. He didn't say that he was a lunatic. He didn't say that he was dangerous and, and all the rest of it. He said, I found Herr Hitler entirely undistinguished. Entirely undistinguished. Um, uh, you know, there was, he was a common man. And, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he did say entirely undistinguished. You know, he, he, he was not the sort of man that you'd invite to into your cabinet or to a dinner party, but you could trust his word. You know, that's what, that's what Chamberlain said, the Prime Minister of Britain. You know, and we all know where that led. You know, the one person who had actually said, we can't trust Hitler, this is going to end in tears and all the rest of it, was Churchill, the only person who believed that he could rally the British and the world to defeat Hitler was Churchill. And so therefore, in May 1940, he had to be made prime minister. There was no choice when it was clear that Neville Chamberlain was going to die soon. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't the first choice of the Conservative Party or the King or anybody. The organised Labour was still very suspicious. The Labour Party were very suspicious of him. But he knew what he wanted to do. And he uh, had had this ability to thrive on setbacks. And all of the characters that I, I uh, uh, looked into actually had at least one major failure in life. And the, the peculiar thing was that they were not downcast by that. In fact, it wasn't a question of being resilient. It was more a question of being what uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb calls anti-fragile, of actually liking in a way, their failures, because it meant that they were important in some sense. Okay, they failed, but they tried to do something very ambitious, or maybe they had good reasons for failing, which didn't reflect badly on them. You know, people can rationalise almost anything. Uh, but it is very important to have failures, but to have an attitude to them, which says, the more failures I have, the better, because that means I'm going to have a big success. And yeah. historically, that's actually quite accurate. It's... It's ridiculous, but it is accurate. I'm sorry, I'd better stop there because I'm... That's all right. I'm sitting here listening. What's your definition of success? Uh, success is having the impact on the world that you want to have. So it might be good or bad. I mean, Lenin was successful in uh, 
you know, taking over from the czars and having his little clique uh, rule Russia, Russia for what was it, fifty years. Um, so it's it's doing what you want to having an impact on the world that you want to have. And the second half of the question, sorry, I've forgotten. And she, do you think that success is in the mind? Oh, of course. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it's in the mind, but it's also in external events, which you then respond to. But um, it's absolutely in the mind, yes. Okay, thank you. So there's a question that goes around a lot of podcasts, which I've re- reversed, so trying to be a bit disruptive. Um, and a lot of people ask on podcasts, what advice would you give your younger self, your 25-year-old self, for yeah. example? I'm going to reverse it and ask you, what advice would you give your older self, maybe your 80 or 90-year-old self? I would say uh, try and have another breakthrough achievement. Try and do something incredibly ambitious. I look forward to seeing what that is. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Okay, I've got uh, two more. So um, on the research on the net, now I'm not one when I do my interviews really to talk too much about money in the sense of individuals' net worth. I sometimes dare myself to ask questions that are a bit brazen and a bit cheeky. I asked Robin Sharma what his net worth was, and he he very, um, in a zen-like fashion, rebuffed the question. But if you research online, there's a lot to say you're worth 100 million, and there's a lot to say you do, you've done some quite big investments in some quite big companies. I just would like you to just share for a minute um, you know, is that true? And do you invest? And is money important to you? Uh, the Sunday Times Rich List last year said that I had um, net worth of £445 million, I think. Right. And that put me some in ridiculously high in the in the UK. Not that I'm really in the UK, but, but anyway, uh, it put me at number 300 or something like that. Above the Queen, which I thought was very funny. I mean, obviously, it's, it's not true. She's far wealthier than I am. I got that one wrong. But, but um, yes, money is quite important, actually. I think it's too important to me, but I, I can't help it. I mean, when I was nine years old, um, a rather imperious friend of my, an auntie of mine, asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a millionaire. And she tutted and said, that's ridiculous. You'll never become a millionaire. And anyway, it's not a job. Now, what job do you want? You know, <laughs> and, and I didn't really want to become a millionaire. It's just the first thing I blurted out when this woman, Miss Gates, was her name, you know, asked me the question. But it sort of focused me in a way of making money. And I think it's a great game. I love the game. You know, I love board games. And I, I used to like Monopoly until you worked out how boring it was, actually. All you had needed to do was get Park Lane and Mayfair and then you quit. But, what, but, you know, I do like games and I do like money, I mean, as a game. I don't actually spend a lot of money. Of course, I have quite a nice lifestyle and I have houses. But, but you know, I don't drive a fancy car. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't go to expensive restaurants. I'm quite mean in many ways. Um, so yeah, money is important, but, but only for those reasons. And, you know, I mean, I, if, if the Sunday times, you know, came out this year, I hope that I would be higher than I was before. <laughs> and how have you made your money over the years, Richard? What will be the main areas? Investing in star businesses. Yeah. In the big, that, uh, the start came with Filofax, uh, which we made into another star business that the, in 2001, I made an investment in a company called Betfair, which was the first betting exchange, and that made me about £80 million in, in you know, one single investment. There have been two investments I've made since then which have carried me to whatever level I am now. But who knows, because those companies have not yet been sold. So, you know, I mean, a, a profit until it's turned into cash isn't is you know you can write numbers down on a piece of paper but um i'm very optimistic about those companies one of them is doing exceptionally well at this at this moment in time uh and growing incredibly fast um so uh i'm hopeful but you know if it all collapsed i wouldn't worry too much but i would have lost the game this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur, and I, I was really excited. I want to thank Oz Khan because he um, connected us together. Um, what does that word disruptive mean to you? Doing things differently. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? Uh, it means challenging the normal. Yeah. Um, it means um, trying to 
find the way where you can have like a multiplier effect. Yeah. Um, it, it means to challenge yourself to, to not stay comfortable. Yeah. Um, it means to improve and innovate because sometimes people are disruptive for the sake of it just to make a yeah. noise and a nuisance, and I'm not sure that that's necessary. Um, definitely to be different, to think different. Um, I, I remember reading 80-20 Principle, which probably, Richard, you're probably um, part of what's created. You're part of the seed of what's created my journey because I think you explaining the 80-20 Principle got me to think about the, the, the multiplier of the one most important thing, which maybe negates the other nine or ten things that are trying to interrupt your day. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I like disruptive. I think disruptive entrepreneur is another great phrase, alongside, of course, unreasonable success. Yes. <laughs> yes. And on that final note, Richard, I'd love um, – I've just bought the books of yours I don't have, so I've just bought Star Principle on Audible. Um, I'm looking forward to unreasonable success. So where can we follow you, um, and what you know, what piece of work or two would you, do you think we should start with of yours? I think if you haven't read the 80-20 Principle, it's still a great one to, to start with. I would say the Star Principle is very – if you're interested in making money anyway, the Star Principle is uh, – is the next one. If you're interested in being outstandingly successful, then buy Unreasonable Success, which is coming out on the 13th of August, <laughs> both in America and everywhere else in the world. So, so um, yeah. And follow me. Please follow me on Twitter. Um, I am at Richard Kosh 8020. And that's K O C H. That's K O C H, Richard Kosh. Yes. Uh, uh, but 8020 as the numerals after my name. And yes. the website is um, richardkosh.net. I, I couldn't get the .com. It was too expensive. <laughs> says, Mine's rich list, 445 million. <laughs> no, I'm very mean, as I said. I don't I don't actually. If you go to my website, you'll see videos of me and all the rest. It's quite, I think it's quite useful. But it's a terrible website, and technically. I need someone to, to do it. But you see, I don't try and monetize all that sort of stuff. So um, maybe I should get someone to do that for me. But uh, in, in some ways, I want people to, to go to the website because they want to learn about me rather than because they want a great sort of you know, smooth running experience. That's my rationalization of having a not very, not very uh, friendly website. But anyway, persevere with it. Richard, it's um, been a pleasure. I'm really grateful that you um, invested an hour and 10 minutes of your time. And I want to say a big thank you. Thank you, Rob. This is a great interview. Thank you. And thank you to all of your listeners and to the people who asked the questions. Thank you. Have a good day.